You're listening to For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd, and this is For the Record. And welcome back to another episode of For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd, and this is For the Record. I hope that you all are having an incredible week and an even more incredible Saturday, or whatever day it is that you're listening to this to. Maybe you prefer your true crime on a Monday after work to decompress and help you unwind. Or maybe you prefer your true crime on a random Tuesday afternoon. Either way, I'm just glad that you're here, and thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. First off, I want to apologize for last week's episode. It cut off before I was finished. I had a major computer malfunction, and so I lost the last five minutes or so of last week's episode. So that is why it ended like it did. I did not realize that it ended like it did until... It was already public and published and people had already listened to it. So I do apologize for that. So what I'm going to do today is recap the last five minutes or so from trial day 15 and then we're going to jump straight into trial day 16. Because my other computer crashed, I lost my notes for trial day 15. So I'm just kind of having to do this off sheer memory. But I remember that one of the last witnesses, and I think it was the final witness for the plaintiff, was a Mr. Trump Jr. And don't worry if you're not a Trump fan. I don't believe that there's any relation to Donald Trump, so you're safe to continue listening. But he was a vocational rehabilitation specialist. And what he would do is if someone had a job, if they were, you know, like a construction worker and they had a spinal cord injury, then what he would do is bring them in, evaluate them, and try to rehabilitate them into a work environment. Not necessarily the same work environment, but some sort of work environment. He didn't just work with the physical patients, the the people who had physical um, issues, but he also worked with people who had mental issues and disorders and things like that. So he was asked to evaluate Maya and he said that up until her stay at Johns Hopkins, that she was a freight train. He used those words exactly. He was a, she was a freight train headed to college and there was nothing that was going to stop her. However, after the experience at Johns Hopkins, that completely set her back. She is an exceptionally smart person. She is very bright. She's very intelligent. She's a senior in high school. She's number two in her class. Up until this year, she was number one in her class, but because of the trial and everything and preparing for it, that's kind of set her back a little bit. But while she is so intelligent and so smart, 
She has not applied to any colleges. She has really no plans for the future. She would like to go to college, but she doesn't really see the point in going to college. And what Mr. Trump Jr. was saying was that because of what happened at Johns Hopkins and caused so much emotional damage to her and mental anguish to her that has really scarred her and if she doesn't get the help that she needs the mental help that she needs then she's not going to be able to live up to the potential that she has or she's not going to be able to excel with her potential Maya has stated that she wants to go to college that she wants to do something with her life but she doesn't she's just so afraid to try to do anything and she wants to get help she wants to go to therapy she wants to do whatever she has to do to get help but she's so scared and has been that if she tries to talk to somebody then her medical records are just gonna get subpoenaed and all of her I guess dirty laundry is gonna be aired for everyone to see just like with this trial, one of the therapists that she was seeing was supposed to be a safe person for her, and then the defense subpoenaed the medical records, and so Maya quit seeing her. So, I understand where Maya's coming from in that sense, but I also agree with Mr. Trump Jr. about how she really needs to to be able to get the help that she so desperately needs so that she doesn't you know waste the potential that she has but that's all I can really remember from trial day 15 so we are going to jump straight into trial day 16 which was Monday October the 16th I'll be honest with you guys I tried recording this yesterday and the first witness for trial day 16 took 20 minutes to get through so I'm having to go back and just summarize everything because this is a four-day trial week it should not be a crazy long episode so I'm going to try my best to keep it short and sweet but get as much information out as possible first up on day 16 we have a Dr. Richards he went over his history and his education where he lives where he works He works in Port St. Lucie, Florida, and I just love the name of that town so much. It sounds so pretty and so coastal, and I just love it. I absolutely love it. If I have any listeners from Port St. Lucie, I am so jealous of the name of your town just because of how pretty it sounds. But anyways, so Dr. Richards was asked by Mr. Anderson to review these Maya's medical records. He and Mr. Anderson had known each other for a very long time. They were friends, but they did things so professionally. Whenever Mr. Anderson would ask Dr. Richards to look through files or medical records, it had to come through Mr. Anderson's office and not Mr. Anderson himself. And there could be no identifying information on who Mr. Anderson was defending in his case so that it would be a completely impartial opinion. Dr. Richards worked a lot with acutely ill people 
and worked with people who had very serious mental issues, such as depression, PTSD, bipolar, schizophrenia, things like that. So he worked a lot with people who had suicidal ideations. And that's really what he was testifying to, was Beata's suicide. So he talked a lot about, like, instincts and a mother's instincts and how there are studies about how even in pregnant women, the maternal instinct, it changes a person. It changes a woman. It changes their hormone levels. It changes the way that their, the chemicals in their brain releases. And I thought that was really interesting. But he also talked about an impulse, an irresistible impulse. And that's what we're going to spend the most time talking about. So Dr. Richards had a, he was able to get a really good background on Beata and considering that she came from communist Poland and she had a very strict, rigid upbringing and the fact that she was Catholic and Catholics are a more rigid type of religion. I'm not saying anything negative about that, but that really played into Beata knowing what was right and what was wrong. She was also a nurse, and he said that most nurses tend to want to do things for other people, not to be the one in charge, but the one who implements the orders given. And he said that that was very fitting for what he knew about Beata. He also talked about the fact that after Maya's CRPS diagnosis, Beata and pretty much, I think it was the entire family, sought out therapy whenever they got the CRPS diagnosis. And he said that that was a very appropriate thing to do. Whenever you get a diagnosis like that, whether it be you or one of your family members, it should be common practice to seek out therapy because that is a life-changing diagnosis. So back to the impulse control or the irresistible impulse. Beata had lost complete control of everything in her life and her life was slowly diminishing. She had no control over anything from her personal life, her work life. She was losing her own identity. She was unable to see or touch or speak to Maya and everything in her world that she had so rigidly built up was literally crashing in on her. And Dr. Richard said that she, Beata, used every defense mechanism available to her. She reached out to friends. She reached out to family. She reached out to other church members. She was trying everything that she could. She was depending on her religion. She was, you know, begging God to help her. And he said, quote, she wanted God to help and God wasn't even allowed in the room, unquote, talking about Maya's room. And after hearing that, I had to step away for a little bit because, yeah. He also said that Beata had something called an altruistic surrender to do something for others without any thought for yourself, even if that means harming yourself. He referenced the movie Sophie's Choice. I haven't seen that. 
but I need to watch it after hearing him talk like this. So knowing that Beata had lost control of her world, she had exhausted all of her options, all of her defense mechanisms, she had reached out to all of her support, and everyone was trying to help her, but nothing was bringing Maya back. And all Beata wanted to do was bring Maya home. He, she wanted to bring her daughter home away from the place where she was being mistreated. So he was just basically testifying to the fact that the treatment of Maya in the hospital was a major factor in what caused the irresistible impulse of Beata's suicide. On Cross, they question Dr. Richards about his friendship with Mr. Anderson. And, you know, I don't really think that that had any relevance, but, you know, he was asked about, you know, alternatives to suicide. And he even talked about, or was asked about the options to transfer Maya from Johns Hopkins. And something that I think is really important to know, in the very first episode of covering this trial, I said that the defense brought up the fact that the family had the option to transfer Maya. And I didn't know that before. But the caveat to that is, yes, they had the option to transfer Maya, but it was under the pretense that Maya was being treated for Munchausen by proxy and not CRPS. If Jack and Beata would have signed the transfer papers with the diagnosis of CR or of Munchausen by proxy, then they would have been liable for charges against them for child abuse. And they were not going to do that because, in their opinion, that wasn't what was going on. So I think that that's really, really, really important to know. All right, there was a lot more to Dr. Richard's testimony, but I'm really trying to keep it short. So we're just going to go straight into the jury questions. I can't remember if I've said it before, but I'm just going to say this jury, this jury is phenomenal. They are just determined to show the world that they are like the best jury in history I'm telling you it is amazing I have been watching a lot of other people cover this case as well as watching on like watching the actual trial stream but a lot of people are calling this jury the savage jury and it's because of the questions that they are asking so here are some of the jury questions for Dr. Richards. Question. Do you believe Miss Beatty's interference in the phone calls was one of the leading causes of the breakdown of Beata's self-control? Answer. Absolutely. Question. In your testimony in Cross, you stated that you were aware that there was an opportunity for Beata and Jack to transfer Maya from Johns Hopkins. Do you know why that transfer opportunity wasn't accepted? Answer. Yes. Follow-up. 
If you know why Beata denied the transfer, was the transfer diagnosis a contributing factor to Beata's suicide? Answer, absolutely. There was kind of some back and forth after the jury questions, but again, I'm trying to keep this as quick as possible, so we are going to skip the rest of that. Up next was Dr. Corcoran who we've already heard from, but he was coming back to testify to the concerns of the setup of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital's reporting system. There was a lack of system-wide approach to quality assurance and performance improvement. That put, by design, the responsibility of quality assurance and performance improvement at the division level. And he really went into how each department is its own division or each floor is its own division. And there was just a lot of complications with that. So he said with each division having their own system, it was up to the department chair to make sure that there were no holes in the system. And as Maya moved through the divisions and through each department and thus the systems, she got lost in the shuffle. There was no training or format to make sure patients were kept safe, and Maya fell through those cracks. They breached the duty to keep her safe, and despite despite the department chair saying it wasn't his job to initiate the change in how things were done, it should have been done regardless. He just didn't want to take responsibility. He was also asked about them billing the the billing the Kowalskis for the treatment of CRPS but they were not treating her for CRPS and that is not okay they absolutely denied the diagnosis of CRPS the diagnosis the the, the diagnoses that were made were based on Maya's mental state and not the physical, not the actual CRPS. So it was really just a mess. Really just a mess. So there were some questions from defense, but we're not going to go over that. Keep it short and simple. Jury questions. Question. Did you meet with your team on a monthly or quarterly basis to discuss improvement, patients, Hold on, I misread that. Do you meet with your team on a monthly or quarterly basis to discuss improvement or to discuss complex patients? Answer, he has a daily huddle with his staff and they meet with the administrators to discuss problems on the floor. He meets with them on a weekly basis and then the directors meet on a monthly basis, if not more frequently. Question, has Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital trained their personnel at this time on CRPS? At this time was Maya's hospitalization time. And Dr. Corcoran said to his understanding, no. And that was his testimony. Next up, Jack was back on the stand. And his was, his testimony was kind of short, if I recall right. They really just asked him a few questions. Did you tell Beata about 
Kathy Beatty's questions to you about getting a divorce? And he said, yes, he did. And it was very upsetting to him and to Beata. Next question, the dress bought for Maya ended up in Kathy Beatty's office. Did Beata know that Maya never got that dress? And yes, she did. Jack was asked about how Beata was getting information about Maya and Jack was still able to go and see Maya. He and Kyle both were. Their visits were supervised, but they, Jack would relay the information to Beata as best as he could. He was also asked if he was able to talk to a Dr. Kastenstein. I think that's how you pronounce the name. And he was not able to speak with this doctor. He attempted to, but she said that she could not speak with him without consulting the lawyers first. They showed a couple more depositions, one being with Dr. Newberger asking if he knew when Maya's last ketamine treatment was, and he did not. And then there was another one with Dr. Sally Smith, but that one really wasn't of anything major to my recollection. She was asked or talking about why she accessed Maya's medical records after being treated, after leaving the hospital. And she said that she just had, she, she had access to it so she could. Mr. Anderson had no more witnesses and the plaintiffs rested their case. So then defense brings in their first witness via deposition. I hate, hate, hate the depositions. Thankfully, I don't have a lot of notes on this deposition, probably because I was having a hard time paying attention because depositions suck, but it was with a Dr. Lewis. Dr. Lewis looked over some of Maya's medical records, but he didn't look at them extensively. He mostly was focusing on the medications that Maya had been taking and did not like the fact that she was taking the ketamine. And that's all that I have for day 16. So now we're going to move on to day 17. Day 17 started out with a lot of motions and arguments, which I have decided for sure I am not going to cover on the podcast. If you want to see a text written version of the motions and arguments, join the Record Keepers fan group and I will try to post those daily as the trial goes on. So the first witness for defense on day 17 was Charlotte Laporte. She was a social worker and case manager for the Kowalski family with DCF. They went over her education history and work history. She was a social worker for medical foster care, which is where a child needs a higher intervention than a normal foster home could facilitate. In 2014, she went to work with Pathways as a caseworker. Pathways is a private facility that works alongside with DCF, the Safe Children's Coalition, and I just have that, the Safe Children's Coalition, and it's an umbrella under Pathways. So she was asked what her role was with the Kowalskis, and she was there caseworker. She asked if she, she was asked if she met Maya. She said yes. In addition to meeting Maya, was she involved in supervising phone calls with Beata and Maya? She said yes. 
as of 11, 15, 16, were the phone calls required to be supervised? She said yes. She had to look at and approve all letters and written items from Beata to Maya and from Maya to anyone outside of the hospital. She also had to vet and do background checks on anyone who wanted to visit Maya. She was asked about her interaction with Maya upon first meeting her. She said that she explained to Maya why she was there, said that Maya was pleasant and easy to talk to. She kept things simple and didn't want to cause Maya any anxiety. She said that she was the one who was on the phone calls. She said that she was the one who was interrupting when Beata was trying to talk about the case and that it was not Kathy Beatty. I personally do not believe this because in court, Charlotte Laporte's voice was very low, very soft-spoken. It had a deeper pitch and the voice on the phone call where Beata was interrupted was a higher pitched, higher toned voice. And I know that people's voices sound different on phone calls. I get that. But I do not think that this was Miss Laporte on the phone. I believe it was Kathy B. On cross, Mr. Anderson was asking about if Charlotte Laporte had followed up with anyone about Maya not being able to pull up her pant. He asked, isn't it your job to make sure the patients are taken care of? You didn't follow up with that, did you? And Miss Laporte said that she doesn't recall if she followed up or not. She also didn't recall the Christmas dress incident. She didn't know it was in Kathy Beatty's office. She didn't know it wasn't given to her in a timely manner. She did not know anything about. There were some jury questions, but I did not get those written down, so they must not have been super impactful in my opinion. So we are going to move on to the next witness. This witness, I had so much trouble listening to this witness. I mean, it took me almost all day because I could not sit and listen to her for more than a few minutes. So I got very behind on trying to keep her testimony covered. But this was Tori Nias. She had had a lot of jobs, but she worked with the Safe Children's Coalition. And now she currently works as a postal worker. She didn't have any like training in psychology or anything like that to work at a facility that works with children. Like there was no social work background or anything like that. So I don't really know exactly why she was working with this place in the first place, but you know. She was a family support intervention specialist. So she supervised visits, transported children, helped families with resources, assisted with child protection when there was removal, and worked very closely with CPS and what qualifies for a removal of a child. She worked with a manager in 2016 with Maya. She worked with Charlotte Laporte and she was present for four visits at Johns Hopkins with Maya. She said that Maya wasn't showing any signs of pain, moving around just fine. She said her legs were in the atomically correct position. 
She talked about the food in Maya's refrigerator and what she did with the items because she took the items out of Maya's refrigerator. She wasn't, Maya wasn't allowed to have food in her fridge, the food in her fridge, and her, she wasn't allowed to have her cell phone or her iPad. She wasn't allowed to have communion. She turned all of these things over to Child Protection Service, and that was that. She took copies and took photos of letters and cards that Maya had made for her family to give to her supervisor to make sure that they were okay with them being given to the family. She said that there was a bottle of holy water and holy oil in Maya's room. And when she asked Maya what she would did or what she did with that, Maya said that she would take the water and the oil and she would make a cross on her hands and knees and rub it on her arms and legs. And it wouldn't always make her feel better, but sometimes it did. She wasn't, Maya wasn't sure who gave it to her, but this lady doesn't know what happened with any of the items that she confiscated from Maya's room. So she believed that Maya was being properly taken care of by Johns Hopkins as of Halloween 2016. Her last visit on November 4, 2016, she said that Maya asked for morphine and couldn't understand why when Maya wasn't showing any signs of pain. She said that she didn't believe Maya was being abused or mistreated by the hospital. And that pretty much summarizes the direct on Tori Mias. They went on a lunch break, the court went on a lunch break, and then came back for Cross. Cross was where things got way more interesting and a little more tolerable. So she stated that she never saw Maya in pain, but she put everything of significance in her notes. She testified that someone saying they're in pain is a sign of the, is a sign that they're in pain, but she never said that Maya was in pain in her notes whenever Maya had told her at every single visit that she was in pain. She said she wasn't an expert in rating pain, but she's had training in rating pain. By asking them if they're in pain, their response to being in pain is an indicator of if they're in pain. Maya told her on four occasions that she was in pain each time that Torinius came to visit her. Something that really stood out to me was that Miss Nias could not find anywhere on the pages that she had, her notes, of what Mr. Anderson was asking her. Mr. Anderson had to go up to the stand and point out every little thing that he was trying to ask her about. Whenever Jack and Kyle came to visit Maya during one of their supervised visit with Miss Nias, Mr. Kowalski asked how Maya was, and she said not good. When Miss Nias asked what not good meant, Maya said that she was hurting. Maya pointed to her old IV port and said that it hurt bad. She said that she attended physical therapy and it hurt, and this lady was like, well, you're not showing signs of pain, even though a sign of pain is saying that you're in pain. I really, really, really hope that the jury was paying attention to this lady's behavior and her body language and the way that she was interacting with Mr. Anderson. She was rude. She was argumentative. She was just awful. She was absolutely awful. 
she I don't even have the words Maya did state that she was in pain but Miss Nia said that she wasn't displaying any signs of pain so if telling you she's in pain is a sign of pain isn't that indicating that she's in pain Miss Nia also said that she was required to take photos and Jack took photos of her feet. Miss Nias did not take photos of her feet, just a general picture of Maya. In Jack's pictures of Maya, he got like a full body picture of her in her wheelchair and you can clearly see that Maya's feet are turning in, meaning she is displaying signs of dystonia. Miss Nia said she didn't believe that she was, but she wasn't a doctor. That's her opinion on what is and isn't dystonia. She said that she moved her feet around freely. And Jack had asked for more time with Maya that Miss Nia's asked, but that was denied. Miss Nia said that she didn't ask that many questions, that it wasn't that big of a deal. She says that Maya didn't actually cry when Jack left. Maya complained that she wasn't happy and unable to sleep. She stated that she was not happy. And Maya told this lady that the hospital staff didn't care about her. On November 4th, 2016, Maya expressed to Miss Nias that the staff didn't care about her. And Mrs. Nias's view was that the staff did care. She spoke with the social workers and the RNs that came into the room and said that Maya was doing really, really well. But there was no documentation of speaking with any of these. We're going to move on to the jury questions, and there's a lot of them. Question. In the Harley Quinn picture, how many charms are on the bracelet? The Harley Quinn picture is one that I believe Jack took of Maya that day. And she had, she was dressed up as Harley Quinn for Halloween and she had a little bracelet on her ankle. And when looking at the photo, she couldn't tell how many charms were on the bracelet, but there was a reason that the jury wanted to ask her that. The follow-up was, did you see any evidence of any lesions or abrasions at the point of contact with the bracelet on her ankle. Miss Nia said, no, I did not. Next question. What was the reason your observations stopped? Miss Nia said the case transferred and her position was no longer needed. Question. Asked on observations of Maya and gave description of her. Are you asserting to the, the jury that during that first visit, you had that Maya and Kyle and possibly Jack were occupied with themselves in a giddy and oblivious way while your team searched the room, the refrigerator, her bag, and confiscated items that were not approved by DCF. And she said that they were enjoying themselves but wouldn't classify what they did as searching. They were looking for safety. Items that were brought with Jack were brought outside of the room. No, and there was no resistance from Maya or Jack. Next question. Your testimony for your four occasions to observe Maya portrays Maya having some physical difficulties, but able to move about and get around in her wheelchair, correct? Answer, she moved around freely without limitations. Question. 
So far in this trial, the jury has been presented with a plethora of photos and videos of Maya taken by both her parents and the staff at Johns Hopkins. Does your team or you or the hospital possess any photos or videos that corroborate your testimony? She said that she took photos of the letters, checks, food, refrigerator, one photo of Maya, and her notes are very, very detailed. She was assigned to document everything she saw, but she doesn't have any of that in her possession. Next question. Is your testimony that a young girl is, quote, happy to be away from her family in a hospital, or is it that she's happy to be happy to having a visit with her family? Answer. Maya stated that she was happy to be away from her mother's anger, but she was also happy to see Jack and Kyle. Question. Are you saying a person is not in pain if they say they are in pain if you don't think you see symptoms of pain? As a person who works in the healthcare profession, are you not to believe what a person says their pain is? Answer. I'm stating that a person can state that they are in pain. They can verbalize it. But she showed no symptoms or saying, ouch, get off of me, let's not wrestle, this hurts. You need more information before you can state someone is in pain. She never once pushed a button asking for pain meds. Question. Did you say her room was completely organized? The photos shown show nothing was organized. And in her testimony, she did say that Maya's room was very clean and very organized. But whenever asked this question... She said the part of her room left side by the bed showed all of her shoes lined up by the chair and far under the chair. So she was saying that the whole entire room was organized, but really it was just her shoes. Next question. Last question. Do you know what CRPS is and what the symptoms of it are? And have you been trained in how CRSP, CRPS pain reacts? She said she's not a doctor, she hasn't been trained in CRPS, and she would have to Google it. Oh my goodness, this jury, I love it. Absolutely love it. All right, we're going to move on to the next witness, which was also by deposition. It was Dr. Posey. Dr. Posey was very soft-spoken and her demeanor was not aggressive at all. And I felt like she was a pretty credible witness for the defense. So basically she talked about Maya being in the emergency room. She was working in the emergency room that night and she talked about Beata coming in and like demanding the ketamine and the high doses of ketamine but that they could not give her these doses of ketamine because of how ketamine is delivered. In the emergency room, whenever they deliver ketamine, it is given in a bolus form, which is a dose that is injected, whereas a ketamine infusion is a higher dose that is given through an infusion site over a long period of time. They talked about how they could do that at the hospital, and that is whenever they decided to admit her into the ICU so that Maya could be infused with the ketamine. She also stated that the hospital does not have a protocol for Munchausen by proxy. 
how do you not have a protocol for Munchausen by proxy whenever you are accusing this woman of having Munchausen by proxy? She also said that there is one person in the whole county who oversees the possibility of Munchausen by proxy, and that was none other than Sally Smith. Dr. Sally Smith. She stated that in the ER, they are not allowed to give patients more than 0.5 to 4 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine. And what Beata was asking for was 45 to 50 milligrams per kilogram. She spoke with someone at Dr. Hannah's office to ask about the ketamine, but didn't speak with Maya's primary care physician or anyone else about Maya's medical history. She didn't consult a therapist or anything because it wasn't an emergent event, even though Munchausen by proxy was a possible diagnosis. The way they administered ketamine was different in the ER. I already went over that. And she just really talked about what happened in the emergency room. Next up was a deposition by Bonnie Rice, who was a nurse practitioner. She said that she couldn't connect with Beata. She said that Beata was focused on medical test and treatment, not the holistic approach. And I'm like, okay, and is that a bad thing? When medicine helps, that's what you should use, is it not? I have no issues with holistic treatment, but sometimes holistic treatment isn't the way that you treat someone. Sometimes they need actual medical intervention. She said that Maya would stop moving when Beata was in the room, but that they did try to treat her pain. And I should say that Bonnie Rice was a nurse practitioner at Tampa General Hospital and not John Hopkins. And that is going to conclude day 17. Next up on the stand was Dr. Michelle Smith, not to be confused with Dr. Sally Smith. Dr. Michelle Smith was a critical care specialist at Johns Hopkins. She worked in the critical care unit, board certified, been at Johns Hopkins since 2008, blah, 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 blah. So she took over Maya's care on October 10th, 2015. And she only worked with Maya or was over Maya until October 12th. She testified that she was aware that the family wanted to transfer Maya to Nemours Hospital, but Nemours didn't feel like Maya was a candidate for their ICU. So Dr. Santana from Nemours said that there was you know, a protocol that they used and they just didn't feel like Maya was a good fit for that protocol. So Dr. Tepa Sanchez, who we're going to talk about next, began the process of transferring Maya the day before and she had called Beata and left her messages but didn't speak with her directly. So the treatment plan for Maya was to give her the ketamine to get her out of her acute pain, but then try to wean her off the ketamine and try something new. Maya didn't want to be examined due to her pain, and there was no other interactions with the Kowalskis on the 10th of October. Michelle Smith said that she spoke with Beata on the 11th. Beata was concerned that the information 
wasn't properly relayed to Nemours, and Beata wanted an infusion pump, or I can't remember exactly what they call it, but it's like a pain pump that is put into the back where it releases medicine into the spinal cord. And they didn't want to do that because there were a lot of risk factors. Beata had mentioned to Dr. Michelle Smith about wanting to try to send Maya to the Cleveland Clinic to have the pain pump placed, but Dr. Michelle Smith did not reach out to the Cleveland Clinic. They had more conversations on the 12th with the Kowalski family. They wanted to do an endoscopy because of Maya's stomach pain, but that was kind of out of the question because of how much pain Maya was already in. So they did gradually start weaning Maya down off the ketamine to, or by one milligram per kilo a day. They were giving her other pain meds while weaning her off the ketamine. Michelle Smith said that everything was going smoothly and Maya seemed to be comfortable for the most part. She did have some outbreaks of pain, but it was not constant and it was controlled. On cross, Michelle Smith was asked about if she was aware that the Kowalski family was told that if they tried to leave with Maya that they would be arrested. She was not aware of that. They had no CRPS program at the hospital and Beata was cooperative and agreeable and she was polite, opinionated, but always polite. The reason the hospital was keeping Maya was because Beata was a harm to her child. There were, quote, red flags in her history. What was the reason you were keeping her there? Did you fear that, what would you fear that Beata would do? I don't have an answer for that. She said that they could have left any time, but they would have gone through a process of leaving against medical advice or AMA. It would be against the policy to restrain a patient for leaving against medical advice. They wouldn't call the police on somebody unless the child was already in DCF custody and the parents tried to take her out, take a child out of the hospital. The ketamine was one of the biggest concerns in the hospital as a whole, but this doctor wasn't, wasn't as concerned with it. She had a lot of experience with ketamine infusions. She was concerned about it having, you know, effects on Maya's organs and whatnot, but not that she was getting so much of it, I guess. And we are going to skip to Dr. Tepa Sanchez. I've been waiting to hear from Dr. Tepa Sanchez because she was referenced so much in depositions and from other witnesses. So I really wanted to hear from her. She had also been sitting in on the court proceedings pretty much from the beginning. She had been there almost every single day. So when I say that her testimony was a little underwhelming, I mean that. But Dr. Tepa Sanchez is from Venezuela. She did her schooling there, but then she came to America and did her schooling here and the rest is history. So Dr. Tepa Sanchez said that Maya was screaming in pain, a lot of loud discussion between Beata and the nurses, that everything was being done was causing Maya pain, and Maya was asking for her anesthesia medications. She said Maya was clearly 
suffering. So after getting basic vital signs, they gave her medicine, a sedative to calm her down, and so they could do a physical exam. The abdominal pain, that's something that they were really concerned with, but they wanted to try to figure out a way to get Maya's stomach examined by either doing a CT scan or doing, what is it called whenever like pregnant people go and get the, the, the thing on their belly? It's not an x-ray, but I can't remember. I can't remember what it's called. I'm having a major brain fart. But, you know, I always thought that with kids, because they move around so much, whenever it comes to like CT scans and stuff, like I thought that they kind of already gave them some sort of sedative for that. So I don't see why they didn't do that. But Maya kept saying that, just saying it's hurting, it's hurting. She would cry out to Beata, mom, please, I'm hurting. She kept saying, give me my medicine, push the medicine. And the pain team had already been contacted in the ER, but Dr. Tepa Sanchez did call them again whenever Maya was taken to the ICU. Dr. Tepa Sanchez kept repeating that Maya was obviously in pain. So the pain team came and they did give her three milligrams per kilo of ketamine. And at one point they did raise that up to five, but that was all that they were comfortable with giving her. Uh, Dr. Tepa Sanchez did say that Maya was screaming and cussing and spitting and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, like, no one else had testified to that yet. But Dr. Tepa Sanchez was like, you know, she was dropping F-bombs and everything. So, let's see here. We're not going to move on to cross because there was no cross. Uh, Dr. Tepa Sanchez did say that in talking with Beata, Beata made statements saying that, you know, whenever Maya was in pain, she wanted to die, and Maya herself had said she just wanted to go to heaven. So, the jury asked, who made the statements, die and go to heaven? And the answer was Beata the first day that Maya was in the PICU. Next question, are these in the medical records? Yes, they were. Are the records in evidence? Yes. When did you communicate with Sally Smith? Saturday the 8th. What documentation was there with the phone call? Or with the, the communication with Sally Smith? It was a phone call, so there was no documentation. How long was Maya in the ER before the PICU? I don't know. When Maya was transferred to the PICU, was it calm or confusing? It was chaotic. Did you discuss with Michelle Smith the family wanted to leave against medical advice? No, that was never brought up. If you know, why wasn't the family not able to leave AMA? I don't know because I wasn't there. Isn't it protocol to chart in your charting discussions with parents? Yes, there is a note on the 9th of her discussion with Jack and Beata on the phone. If someone tells you they want to go to heaven or die, do you report that to anyone to see if anyone needs to be placed in a, on a psych hold? Yes, I contacted the psych consult. Could you have not called police or security if you thought that Beata was going to harm herself? 
She would have called social workers, but she wouldn't have known how to handle the situation with it, with Beata being the mom and not the patient. Did Dr. Posey convey her concerns about child abuse? No. Do you have that documented on the back and forth of ketamine dosage? My records show the final doses agreed upon to give Maya. Was Maya dehydrated prior to arrival? She had already been given fluids in the ER, so she wasn't dehydrated. Did you observe Maya's nutrition? She was thin, but she wasn't malnourished. What is SCD? She talked about that, about like compression socks and everything. Uh, so the answer was compression socks. They're for high risk for people who have uh, a high risk for blood clots. Maya was already high risk for blood clots because she had a central port. Your administration of ketamine seemed to methodically rise up. What was your reason for dosing ketamine this way? She's used to prescribing ketamine in lower doses. They go by how the patient's responding, vital signs, and organ function. So what I really wanted to hit on with this witness was that she did not put in her notes that Maya was using foul language. It was not in her notes at all. And she was asked if that language was offensive to her. And she said, yes, it was. Well, Mr. Anderson pulled up the text messages. And I can't remember the witness's name now, but someone else who worked at Johns Hopkins who was texting Dr. Tepa Sanchez about Ketamine Girl. And it was the text messages that the person who sent it said, did you hear about Ketamine Girl's mom? And <clears throat> Dr. Tepa Sanchez was like, yeah, I know we did the right thing, but it's so effed. And like, actually spelled out the word. So... The whole thing was, like, she said that she didn't use, she didn't want to put this foul language in, that it was offensive to her, but then she uses the exact same words later on. So now, okay, that was the end of my notes for day 18. I do apologize because this is going to be a little bit longer of an episode again. I think that we should just prepare for longer episodes for the remainder of this trial, which should only be about two more weeks, but we will see. So, day 19, there was a lot of arguments. I think that they argued for over an hour before the jury was ever brought in. So the first witness was of Zachary Pitzenberger, who worked at the ER at Lurie's Children's Hospital. He is a pediatric ER physician. This was a witness by deposition. Mostly he testified to the fact that he didn't think that Maya actually had CRPS. So, yeah. There was another witness, but my computer glitched the one that I just started to use glitched and I lost the notes for that witness 
So the next witness was via Zoom of Lindsay Masika. Masika. I can't remember how she said. But she worked at DCF and was a child protective investigator. She mostly just testified to what she because she was the one who was over what would come could come into the room the visitation all that kind of stuff so she was the one who said you know like no to any outside foods because there could be ketamine on it liquid ketamine she did say that she did not say that Maya could not have her prayer book or her rosary or the Tommy Hilfiger Christmas dress she was more than okay with letting Maya have those things. So she really didn't know that those things were not being given to Maya or that Maya wasn't allowed to have them. And the rest of the depositions, I really just couldn't follow along with them. There was so much medical stuff involved in it that it just kind of all went over my head and I could not take accurate notes on it. So... We are going to end day 19 with that. It was a short day. They let the jury go in like the middle of the afternoon because one of the depositions was going to be two hours long and it was just a lot to go through. Something that I did want to talk about though was this over the weekend it was going to be one of the jurors birthdays and so the judge had his assistant put up a happy birthday banner in the juror, jury room. And then put up another banner for the other jurors, whose birthday was not that day, a happy unbirthday banner. And everybody just absolutely loved it. All of the jurors thought that it was great. A note was put on the judge's bench saying thank you and that it made everybody smile. And I just really love the rapport that this judge has made with this jury and I, I think that it's really good. I think that the judge has made this jury comfortable enough to where they can feel confident in asking questions and making their opinions known. And I really like it. So before we sign off for today, I want to give a couple of shout outs and have you guys go and follow and subscribe on YouTube to a couple of channels if you aren't already. I will have these channels linked in the description of this episode so that you can just click and go follow. But first, I want to shout out Law & Lumber. He is a attorney who works in Virginia. He does domestic and family relations, and he is covering the Take Care of Maya trial. Every single day, he does a recap of the trial he is able to break down the more legal side of it, the law side of it. He can explain the motions and the arguments. He, as a lawyer, he is able to really give a good opinion about the witnesses and how the attorneys are interacting with them. So he is highly recommended. I highly suggest that anyone who is interested in this case or is listening to the podcast to go and give his channel a look over and watch some of his stuff. The second shout out that I want to give is another YouTuber. His YouTube channel is Recovery Addict. He is covering the trial as well. 
but he has a direct audio feed from the courtroom. So whenever there are, you know, sidebars and they have the mics turned off on the court feed, he is able to hear what is being said. And he relays that on his streams. Legally, he cannot play the audio, but he can repeat what is being said from the audio. I watched him do trial coverage yesterday and it was great. He did so good. He also has a very, very, very smooth voice. Like he should do audiobooks or something because it was just, his voice is just good to listen to. So go and check those guys out. They are amazing. I also wanted to let you guys know that I've been able to enable listener support for the podcast. This is a monthly financial donation that helps sustain and make the podcast easier to do. So in the description of this episode, there is a link if you would like to sign up to be a listener supporter you can do so. I do not have control over the amount of monthly. I cannot change the monetary amount that is offered that is already done by Spotify. So thank you to those who have already signed up. I appreciate you more than you could ever know. You're amazing. Thank you to all of the listeners. Y'all have just blow me away with your support and your love. And I just, I, I love you guys. I love all of you so, so very much. Real quick, if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button or that follow button wherever you're listening from. And go ahead and leave me a five-star review because, you know, that really helps your girl out. All right, guys, until next week, the record will so reflect. Mm-hmm.